Good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Doing very well, thanks. All right, off to a great start so far. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, as Justin said, we are continuing our series through the Psalms. Today, we are taking into consideration the practice of remembrance. And uh, as far as disciplines and practices go, that one seems really straightforward, remembrance, to remember things. It's a little bit more technical, though, than it sounds. So I'm going to pray, and we'll get started, and we'll work our way through Psalm 77. Feel free to open to that if you'd like. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity that we have to meet together and to worship you and to enjoy you, to enjoy one another. Thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. And uh, even though I've already done the sermon once today, I just pray for uh, fresh fruit, that it would be powerful, and God, that you would use it in my life as well as the lives of my friends here. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want to start out by making a declaration that we can celebrate, and that's that God speaks. Like, it's a beautiful truth that God speaks to us. Being that God is our creator, and the fact that he will eventually judge us for our sins, it's a beautiful mercy and grace that God speaks to us through his word or through the still small voice in our prayer time. Because as our judge, God also fairly tells us what he expects of us. One of my favorite teachers in college used to say that the reason graven images of the true God were so egregious in the Old Testament was because before Jesus came, God was not a God to be seen, but a God to be heard. God speaks, and that's beautiful. However, sometimes God doesn't speak. Sometimes we pray, and we go through times of deep struggling, and we don't feel like God answers us. It's especially hurtful in those times when we feel distraught and in despair. It is a truth and a beautiful truth that God speaks, but for some of us, it's a truth we know all too well that sometimes God doesn't speak. Scripture gives us a few different reasons why sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers. It even goes so far as to say is when we are unloving toward our spouses or because there's unconfessed sin in our lives, God won't hear our prayers and won't respond to our prayers. But even so, there are times when we've submitted ourselves to that conviction. We've asked of God, why is it you're not answering? We've considered our lives, and we can't come up with the reason. We toil in prayer. We seek God earnestly, and yet we seem to stay in times of distress and despair. The reason I bring that up is because that's what happens in this psalm, in Psalm 77. In Psalm 77, God does not say a single thing. We do believe that it's in here because it's God's word, but within the narrative of the psalm, no words from God here. There are actually even very few actions from God in this psalm. I'll point out as we get into it that there's really only one thing that God does in the psalm that it is, by majority, just the writer's thought process. 
As I said before, we are studying the practice of remembrance this morning, and what we have in Psalm 77 is the procedural of how the author, whose name is Asaph, how he practices remembrance. It's really just an account of him doing remembrance. And it's powerful to see that this can be employed in times of great distress when we feel like God isn't speaking. So if you're familiar with that feeling that you've sought God in times of great distress and great struggle and feel like he hasn't answered, this psalm is for you. And I can say for myself that I know what that's like, so by God's grace, this psalm is for me. I'm going to open this up and read in it. Psalm 77 has been titled in the ESV as, In the Day of Trouble, I Seek the Lord. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies forth sunder, uh, The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron, the word of the Lord. Firstly, I want to take a second to explain who Asaph was. He's the author of this psalm, and he was one of three primary musicians-slash-seers uh, during King David's dynasty. Well, specifically during King David's reign. This trio of people were Asaph, Heman and Jeduthun, probably also known as Ethan. They were all Levites, and their jobs were to prophesy and make prophetic music in David's court. Now, the reason I bring that up is because this psalm is not the struggles of someone who barely knows God. These, this psalm is not the attempts of somebody who's weak in the faith and in weak in theology. This psalm is written by 
if something like this exists, a professional believer. His job was to be prophetic, a musician. His heritage as a Levite was to be concerned with the business of God. This is a masterclass of remembrance. This is a masterclass example of what the practice of remembrance should look like when employed of times of deep distress. Now, if you're taking notes and you want three points to follow, I would say this. Remembrance is interpreting present questions through past cases to poise us for the future. Now, at present, at the writing of this psalm, Asaph is in great distress, and we might wonder why. Well, he doesn't tell us. Being that Asaph is this court musician, he really only publishes what is beneficial for the court. He doesn't take the time to tell his life story. The court doesn't care about that. The public doesn't care about that. He's here to show people what to do when they themselves are in distress. That being said, some theologians have tried to consider what it is that might be bothering Asaph. And for the sake of argument, it's interesting to take some time to think it through. Some people think that it's just a personal problem, something going on in Asaph's personal life that's causing him great distress, maybe relationship problems that he can't seem to beat. Maybe he's got opponents, enemies in the world that he can't seem to overcome. Asaph was also the writer of Psalm 73, which we studied two weeks ago, and he talks about in that psalm about um, how his life as a believer is so hard when the lives of sinners seem to be so luxurious. So maybe this psalm was written at a time when he's in deep personal distress. Others have claimed that maybe the psalm was written at a time when the nation of Israel was in great turmoil. And maybe what Asaph is feeling is concern for his brethren, concern for his country. And maybe when Asaph is saying, will you withhold your favor forever? What he's asking is, will you withhold your favor from the country forever? We take a second to consider both of those things because great scholars of the Bible have considered both of those options as possibilities for the authorship of this psalm. The reason why that matters is because it tells us that the psalm is applicable for either level of distress we're experiencing personally. There are times when personally things are going great, but we think as a nation or as a world there are unsurmountable obstacles that we cannot beat. And so we have this public concern. And we cry out to God to end this pandemic or, or fix uh, the, the hatred and, and uh, maybe economic insufficiencies of our, of our country, of our world, our society. Public concern. Or sometimes we are distraught because these personal things, struggles in our relationships, struggles in our marriages, struggles with our careers, our finances, our family. I would argue that this psalm, this practice of remembrance as exemplified in the psalm is applicable in both of those, public and private concerns. Now let's see where Asaph begins. He has this fundamental, foundational hope 
that springboards him into a greater relief. And it's in verse 1. He says, I cry to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In Psalm 17, 6, David says this, I call upon you, for you will answer me. That is not what Asaph says here. Because this is a time when God seems to not be answering. Sometimes it seems like God does not speak. Sometimes, indeed, God does not speak. But Asaph here is building his hope on the idea that if I, as long as I'm praying, at least God will hear me. And that's a mercy that we can hold on to. In seasons where it seems like we're crying out to God and he won't answer us, we can depend on this hope that he will hear us. That's a great grace as well. I, as a father, sometimes block out my kids because they're telling me a million things about a million things that I don't understand or asking me questions about shows that they watch. And I'm like, I don't watch the show. How can I answer that? And so I kind of tune them out. But unlike me, an insufficient, imperfect father, our God is a God who hears us when we pray, even in times when he doesn't speak. Now, so on that fundamental hope, if we can gather with Asaph on that fundamental hope that God will hear us, that prepares us for this practice of remembrance. He says in verse 2, In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. This is the place where he begins. And it's a place of deep anguish. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. Maybe you're in one of those places right now, whether it's because of a private struggle or because of your concern for your community at large. You're in good company. That's where Asaph begins. This procedure is for you. Now, he says that he's seeking God at all times and that his soul refuses to be comforted. What that means is that Asaph won't settle for creature comforts to just make him feel a little bit better. I think we as people aren't quite up to snuff like that. I, I think for myself, when I'm seeking God and it, and it doesn't seem to be helping me feel better, I will go to self-medicate. I will go to creature comforts. I tend to overeat or oversleep or binge watch or go on Amazon and buy myself some toys or something. These are things that we as people go to when seeking God becomes laborious, when seeking God doesn't seem to pay off for us. But Scripture encourages us to continue, to continue knocking, to continue seeking God. And so Asaph does that. But he gets to the point where that itself becomes exhausting. Look at verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. He has now been seeking God for so long that the very process of praying is hurting him. Maybe you've been in a place where you've prayed the same prayer, asked for the same thing over and over and over again, and every time you pray it, it breaks your heart because it reminds you of every prior time you've prayed it, and yet it remains unanswered. That's where Asaph is right now. And again, he's not a man of little faith. You could call him a professional believer, again, if something like that exists. Yet he's at this place where even seeking God has begun to hurt him. 
Now, verse 4 is the turning point for the psalm. Because as I said, God doesn't speak in this entire psalm within the narrative. It is God's word, but he's not speaking within the narrative. But here, he does the one and only action. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. Asaph is now at this place where he's, he's prayed himself weary and he's ready to fall asleep. But in the late night, God holds his eyelids open and says, don't give up. You're almost there, Asaph. Stick with it just a little bit longer. This is what God does for him. In his time of need, in his time of distress, God refuses to answer. God refuses to intervene immediately on his struggles. But what God does is keeps him awake. But it's because God keeps him awake, it's because God leads him to stay the course that Asaph begins this process of remembrance that eventually leads to his, his relief. He says he's so troubled that he cannot speak, so what does he do instead? I consider the days of old, the years long ago. For Asaph, taking some time to think back becomes a reprieve for him for the present struggles. There's a reason that our legal system depends on precedent. It's because the things that have already happened have been submitted to the sort of hindsight is 2020 sort of thing. When events have occurred, the time, the time, from, uh, the time that follows their occurrence gives us an opportunity and wisdom to kind of examine those things, investigate those things, pull from them lessons, scrutinize what happened, and we can think heavily upon them. Our present circumstances are not like that. The things around us are fresh, untested, unexamined. And perhaps that's why Scripture says we are to walk by faith, not by sight. The things around us are fresh, untested. And so Asaph escapes the present for a little bit to examine things that are scripturally told and scripturally interpreted. Now, I said that remembrance is interpreting present questions through past cases to poise us for the future. And in verses 6 through 9, we get Asaph's questions. They're this, uh, starting in verse 7, actually. Will the Lord spurn forever? That means reject. Will the Lord reject forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious has he in anger shut up his compassion, Selah? And he lets that sit with him. That's what Selah means. It's a break, to just hold for a second and to take another direction. His questions are hard, harsh even. They're a little bit more like accusations toward God. Now, for a second, I just want to take a break and think that, remind us that Asaph is not being melodramatic. This is the way we feel in times of deep distress, in times of confusion, frustration, and fear. We get these nebulous feelings swirling around us, these accusations, these doubts toward God. But oftentimes, we think the right thing to do is just to ignore them or refuse them. We think that thinking these questions, verbalizing them, giving them any attention or thought is blasphemous and wrong. But we see from this master class professor that this is actually wisdom to confront these feelings. Don't ignore them. List them and ask them. 
But notice something about his questions, and it's that they all surround God. They are not questions that give us any clue to what he's go- what's going on in his life because they're not surface-level questions. They're not questions that say, why is so-and-so being so wicked? He goes straight to, will God reject forever? Ultimately, any insecurities, any fears, any struggles we have, they are matters about God. But we can be so distracted by the surface-level things that we never get to the heart of it. I would encourage us to trace our questions to their theology. What do those questions, what do those struggles imply in our hearts about our faith toward God? Our questions about why is my life in trouble are really about will God reject forever? Has God withheld his compassion? Our questions about our jobs and finances are questions about will God provide for us or will he abandon us? They're theological. And if we're to be delivered from these areas of distress, we really need to push past the surface level and get to the theology of our questions. So that's what Asaph does here. All of them are questions about God. Now, he writes out these questions, and he submits us to this procedure. It's almost like the scientific method. He brings up his questions, and then he tries them against something. Verse 10 tells, him what he, tells us what he tries them against. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He's going to take these present questions, and he's going to see if they apply when he views them through what has happened in Scripture. It's also important to notice that what he's going to do is compare his current feelings against narratives that have transpired in Scripture, not just in his past. In, in our hindsight, our hindsight for our lives is not exactly 2020. Sometimes we, in hindsight, uh, interpret things that have happened to us in the past yeah, you know, an 80 percentile. We can still get things wrong. But he goes to Scripture because all the details are right in Scripture. And then you have inerrant interpretations of those events in Scripture. And so he sets a good example of that. And then he says something really interesting in verse 15. He said, You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Now those, those terms, the children of Jacob and Joseph, it's talking about Israel, maybe even talking about uh, the people of Judah versus the people of Israel in the north. And that's a little bit complicated. Don't worry about that. But he brings up these names, and it brings to mind something interesting for me, at least. Jacob and Joseph are really interesting contrasts of one another. Really, the only thing that they have in common, other than the fact that they're related, Jacob was Joseph's dad, is they both trusted in God. But as far as people go, they couldn't be more different. Jacob was wily, conniving even. And oftentimes he got himself into situations from which only God could rescue him. He sometimes did foolish things, but he loved God and he depended on God to rescue him. Joseph is pretty much the opposite. Sometimes he appears to be immature, but for the most part, he's just an upstanding guy. Some people will go so far as to say that not a single sin is attributed to Joseph in the Genesis narrative. I don't know if I agree with that, but that's how squeaky clean this guy is. 
Notwithstanding, despite his innocence, enemies rise up against him, even his own brothers, and they put him in these hard situations from which only God can save him. Now that, that's important that we bring that out because are those not the two categories of things that we struggle with? We get, into, we get ourselves into situations because of our own foolishness, because of our own sins, and we're stuck in the pit that we've dug for ourselves. That happens sometimes. Or other times, aren't we behaving exemplary and sometimes forces of the world or even oppressive people or antagonistic parties, they come down on us and then we're stuck and we're thrown into a pit rather than digging one ourselves. Both of those categories, regardless, God is a God who redeems his people. God is a God who saves. In whichever of those categories you find yourself in this season, doesn't matter. Whatever category our community finds itself in, doesn't matter. God's the same God. So that's where Asaph begins. And then he picks this narrative from Scripture that is his best comparison to what it is that he's currently going through. And he chooses the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, it's important that we kind of review what is the crossing of the Red Sea. It's told of in Exodus 13 and 14, and we probably have seen it in a movie and a cartoon, but the scriptural details are important for our study this morning. Here are the details. Israel, the, the children of Israel, are escaping Egypt where they were held captive as slaves for centuries. And God leads them to escape. The Egyptians reluctantly let them go. And once they've, getting, they've gotten a few days away, the Egyptians change their minds. And the Israelites are mostly on foot and they've got a head start. But the Egyptians have chariots and horses, so they catch up quick style. Eventually, the Israelites get trapped. The enemy's behind them, the Red Sea in front of them. They have nowhere to go, and they're in distress. Before them is an inescapable obstacle. But then God calls the leader of the Israelites at the time, his name is Moses, to raise up his staff, and miraculously, the Red Sea parts, and the Israelites continue through that dry ground with walls of congealed water on either side of them. And when they cross to the other side, the Egyptians follow them straight through that pathway through the Red Sea, and then God closes the water. And it's that situation that finally vanquishes Israel's enemies. Asaph walks through this story. He practices remembrance. He brings his present questions to this past case and sees if, if his questions, his accusations of God, hold up uh, when, when held against this story. But here's the thing, Asaph won't tell this story like I just did, with all those details, with all those settings. He's focused on God. The story is important, but what's really mattering to him at this point is whether or not God has abandoned him. So he's searching for God in the story. Listen to the way that he tells it. It's very different from the way I just did. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. He's seeing that the God 
that he believes right now is not answering him and maybe even not caring for him, he sees that that God was active and powerful at this time when the nation of Israel felt trapped like he does. Verse 19, he says, your way was through the sea. This is actually the second time Asaph brings up the way of God. Back in verse 13, he says, your way is holy. And then from verse 19 uh, to 20, to the end of the psalm, he references the way of God in, in a few different ways. It says way, or path, or led, or journey. I don't think he says journey, but kind of that idea that the way that God does things, the way that God leads people, the, the route that God takes, that is part and parcel with who God is, and it is important, and it is holy, and it is good. Exodus says two times that the reason the Israelites were on the shore of the Red Sea was because God put them there. If you're curious, Exodus 13:18 and Exodus 14:2. I'm not going to get into the geography of it, but the Israelites could have circumvented the Red Sea earlier on their journey. But God redirected them. He put them on the shores of the Red Sea. He put them in this place where they felt trapped. And he did it so that way he could show how mighty and powerful he was to deliver. And that may seem weird, but Asaph says, no, that's holy. This is the way that God does things. He puts us in positions of difficulty to show his might, to show his power. He says, your way was through the sea. And in the Hebrew culture, sea, water, those, these are representations of chaos and untamable danger, things that are unpredictable and always changing, deadly things. Asaph says, your way is through the sea. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hands of Moses and Aaron. Asaph is beginning to understand that him feeling in distress, him feeling this depression, this unsurmountable obstacle, this is the way God does things. God leads us to places where we feel powerless so that way he can show his power on our behalf. And just like for Asaph, he feels like almost like God is not there. He believes God will hear him, but God is not answering him. The Israelites, they didn't see God that day. Asaph says, yet your footprints were unseen. God was apparently not there, but yet clearly he was active. Clearly he was working. Clearly he was making their way of escape. Now by this process of remembrance, Asaph is kind of gearing up and understanding how God works when it seems like he's not there. And then the psalm ends kind of abruptly. It just says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses. And that's why I say that remembrance poises us for the future. It doesn't necessarily solve our problems. It just gives us a level of expectancy. Because then we get an idea of who God is. Remember, we said that all of our concerns, they're theological concerns. But if we get a better understanding of who God is and how he works, we can kind of dust off our pants and just 
Stand still and wait. Because that same God who delivered the Israelites is the same God now. The same God who put them in that place, feeling like, it was, like they were trapped, is the same God who led us to this place where we feel like we're trapped. And in the same way that God showed his might through miraculous ways that day, I'm ready for him to do that again. And I'm ready to trust. Problem's probably not solved. But Asaph's fears, his theological questions, his concerns, they're improved. They're straightened up. This is going to get a little bit meta for a second. I think the reason why the crossing of the Red Sea is so close and relevant to Asaph's current struggle is because it's actually what he's going through, almost step by step. In the same way that Israel was put into this place of great distress because God led them there, Asaph is here in this place of distress after seeking the Lord, and God has not yet provided him relief. In the same way that uh, God parted the Red Seas, God kept Asaph's eyes open, kept him staying the course. In the same way that God provided a surprising way of salvation for the Israelites through the crossing of the Red Sea, God provides a surprising way for Asaph through this kind of process of remembrance. See, God's way is holy, and God's way is sometimes through the sea. Sometimes God's way of doing things is to not make us circumvent our obstacles, avoid our obstacles, avoid our struggles. Sometimes the best way that God can show us who he is in power, in might, his mightiness to save is by leading us to the shores and then delivering us straight through them. And that's what Asaph has experienced over the course of this psalm. That's what remembrance does. It helps us to look beyond this untested present circumstance, this fresh scariness, and re-remember who is the God that's in control. When we feel like we're in times of danger, and we remember, oh wait, no, 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 God works in places of danger. God leads us through danger. His way is through the sea sometimes. It helps us to not be so afraid when the waves arise. Now, for Asaph, the crossing of the Red Sea was the most relevant to him. But for us today, I would encourage us to remember upon the cross of Jesus Christ. For that is the most relevant past case to whatever it is you're going through today, whatever you're going through today. If your questions, your struggles are about the the waywardness of our community, of our government, of our nation, of our world, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, there is a coming perfect king who will rule on the throne of David with judgment and justice from that time forward, even to forever. If your struggles and your fears are with relationships or your marriage, because of Jesus' cross, God has reconciled the greatest relationship between you and God. And even if here on earth, 
your relationships fail, you are welcomed in as the church into the bride of Christ and entered into an unending, unfailing relationship. And if your fears and your concerns are about your vocation, your career, your finances, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we people have been brought together into his royalty. And here, here's the thing. There's a lot of imagery in this psalm about shepherding. And the Bible likes to point out this phenomenon of a relationship between a shepherd and his flock. They're, for some reason, good shepherds, they fall in love with their flock. They love their sheep like children. But sheep are feeble and defenseless and kind of foolish. They have very little to offer the shepherd aside from times of fleecing. But the shepherd risks his life for his sheep. The shepherd will go out and find one foolish, wayward sheep. And the sheep in kind learn to trust and follow their shepherd. They learn their shepherd's voice. And they follow him as he leads them to places of safety, provision, comfort, and peace. God loves to use this relationship to describe the way he feels towards us. The Red Sea crossing is actually full of that imagery. Remember, it's Moses' staff that is used to part the Red Sea. Moses was a shepherd by trade. And even though God seems like he wasn't there and like he'd abandoned his people and they were in great distress and despair, even though his footprints were unseen, he led them like a flock, like a shepherd. And today, whatever it is you're going through, whatever your fears are, personal, public, private, communal, God is a shepherd. He leads us. Jesus says even that he's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. Does that answer the questions that we have, the doubts that we have? God, will you abandon us? No. I'm a shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. God, will you not provide for me? No, I'm a shepherd. I bring you by still waters. And all of these are made possible because of Jesus' cross. And that's relevant to you today. So we need not be distracted by these present troubles. But we can lean on the truth proven by a past verifiable event, the cross of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian today, or you're struggling with your faith, and maybe you've given up on your faith. Ask yourself why that is. What are my questions? What are my accusations? But push beyond just the surface level things, the circumstances. Go into the theology of it. Maybe you've decided you're no longer a Christian or you've decided you won't become a Christian because of how bad the world is or because there are children suffering in this world. Don't ignore those questions. In fact, list them, ask them, but then interpret them through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's answers there for everything, for all things. And you will find that even though circumstances don't always change, you're prepared, you're expected that God will deliver because that's the God who he's proven to be. 
And if God did not withhold his own son from you, how, why would he abandon you now? Why would he restrain from you, withhold from you good things? He won't. And you find that you can dust off your pants, be poised and ready and expectant for what is to come. If you're a Christian, don't deny yourself those questions. Don't deny yourself those feelings in some attempt to be respectful to God. God knows you're feeling them. Instead, bring them to the cross because you have the faith that your questions, your doubts, your struggles, as unsurmountable as they may be, you have the faith that the cross can prove those things and prove in those things that God is mighty to save and a shepherd, even when God's footprints are invisible and unseen. He's there. And remember that God's way sometimes is through the sea. It's when, it's when we're in times of chaos and trouble and difficulty that we see actually how big our God is. The ultimate example of this is the cross of Jesus Christ, isn't it? If anything, there was a picture, an inclination that God's will and power had failed, it would be when his son was executed. But in reality, that was God's secret way, surprising way towards the salvation of his people. Maybe the season you're going through is like that. Maybe it's like the crossing of the Red Sea. Maybe it's like Asaph's depression. Maybe it's like Jesus' cross. That as God delivers you through that situation, you will see the powerful might of God and the endearing, unabandoning love of God for you. But we come to that place when we don't shy away from our doubts, but we bring them and confront them against the beauty of the cross and continue to do it. Don't give up. Keep those eyes open until you find the answers that poise you for the expectant future that comes in Jesus' salvation in this life as well as in eternity. Let's pray. Jesus, here, you're generous and gracious. You've not withheld a single thing from us, not even your own life. And this morning, as we worship you, this morning, as we take communion, we want to bring to you our fears, our questions, our accusations, the ones we feel now, today. And we want to bring them at the foot of the cross and say, God, prove yourself in these questions that I have. Prove yourself against these accusations I have. And, and I believe, I have faith that the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to explain all of our present trials. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. We pray that we would walk in enduring faith, even when you're silent. In Jesus' name, amen.